house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Slaves. We're not recapturing anyone. There is a sea ahead and an army behind. Ready yourselves! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that whatever we go through, we're we are standing with Diane Warren. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with the Mariah to my Whitney at karaoke, Joe Reed. Uh, you know, Chris, many nights I prayed with no proof anyone could hear. No proof anyone could hear. But in our hearts, you know, we hoped for a song that we barely understood is basically my take on this movie. Mm-hmm. There can barely be miracles. Under- there can be miracles, Chris, when you make a movie about the Bible. But That's hope, not about But hope Bible, is really it- frail. Yeah, hope is real. Okay, it's about the Bible theoretically, but like it tries to be as like it's a deconstruction of the Bible. It's a realist take on the story of Moses. Yeah, what really happened? (laughs) And openly an atheist, which is fine, but like, sure, why tell that? What what is the impetus? Why be why be the Snopes? Why be the the director who puts the Snopes tests to the story of the Exodus, who's that I have several problems with this movie, but that's one of the big ones. It's just sort of just like the whole section on the plagues, which by the way, takes for fucking ever and is so weirdly toned, but also it's just sort of just like, is your whole point here to like make the realists case for the plagues of the Bible of the story of like, Passover and the Exodus? Because, like, I could find several better uses of your time. Uh, at least better uses of two and a half hours of your life. Um, I don't know. I guess what we're saying here is that biblical epics, specifically the story of Moses, are probably better when you have pop divas one-upping each other. I've never instead seen... of yeah. bro actors out eyelinering each other. <laughs> I've never seen actually the Prince of Egypt. I've only ever heard what? I've only ever listened to When You Believe 100,000 times. Um <laughs> I know it has like a very interesting place in history the Prince of Egypt because it was like the first Dreamworks animated movie and mm-hmm. it was one of the like big anticipated sort of like how is this going to fare against the Disney juggernaut and then it won best original song which was like Disney's you know, B 
beachhead at the Oscars, right? And I don't know, nothing about it, nothing about the movie the movie was super compelling to me, besides the fact that Michelle Pfeiffer was a voice in it. But, um... And Sandra Bullock, how dare you? Wait, was it really Sandra Bullock? Do you not? Okay, I'm just gonna give you some of the prints of it. We're, I'm I just sure thought it was we'll Michelle Pfeiffer and Ray Fimes. Those are the only two names I knew of. Also, Val Kilmer plays Moses. <laughs> okay. Jeff Goldblum, hmm. Danny Glover, Patrick Stewart, Dame Helen Mirren, <laughs> Steve Martin, and Martin <laughs> Wait, Short. Did Steve Martin play King Tut? Because that's crazy if that's true. Now, when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy King. So funky. Funky. Did you do the funky? Born in Arizona, <laughs> was it like uh, was it like did they play it straight or was it one of those things where like Jeff Goldblum voices the like crazy like funny cat that like provides comic relief or was it like I mean th- I guess it would depend on your uh, perspective on the Exodus story because Jeff Goldblum was Aaron who like oh. if you want to <laughs> talk about the crazy like feral cat of Exodus Gods and Kings now I'm imagining uh, Jeff Goldblum as Aaron. Aaron, of course, is the brother of Moses. I'm imagining him sort of like coming up to Moses and just being like, you gave so much time thinking about whether you could part the Red Sea that you didn't give any thought to whether you should. <laughs> and he's just like the Ian Malcolm of that entire excursion where he's just like, we shouldn't be doing this. Oi. Anyway. Uh, but Exodus Gods and King, is their, like, crazy kooky cat is Aaron Paul playing Joshua. Who, like, okay, so Has here's the thing. Has a beard? Aaron Which, of Paul. Of course, it's a Bible story, but, like, no. Oh, see, Aaron Paul with a beard was a little bit doing it for me, but that's beside the point. Oh, really? It just looked like I could have snapped it like a mall Santa, you know, just pull <laughs> on it and it just, like, snapped I mean, back in the chin. I mean, that's not entirely false. Um, the thing with Aaron Paul in this movie is... And whatever, I'm going to go, I'm going to be mentioning the 1956 uh, film, The Ten Commandments, a lot, because that made this movie made me think of that a lot, and this movie did not compare well in retrospect at all. Um, Joshua in The Ten Commandments is, like, a major character. He's basically, like, the third lead, and he gets his own little, like, portion of the story, because at the end, Moses has to sort of hand the entire expedition off to Joshua, because in the Bible, it's Joshua who carries, who leads the Hebrews into Canaan, whatever, the promised land, and because Moses, like, very famously, like, isn't allowed to go in there, because God's a dick, y'all. But... Joshua in this movie, as played by, like, name actor and multiple Emmy winner and, like, Breaking Bad star and, like, probably the most, like, the second or third most familiar actor to people watching this movie because of how popular Breaking Bad is. Probably the most unrecognizable because, like, this is very much like also John Turturro bald in full face with like eyeliner and it's like it looks weird but like Aaron Paul kind of gets away with it because he's the least recognizable oh it took me several scenes to recognize John Turturro but we'll get into that but the thing with Aaron Paul is like yes yeah there's I out like these people are so whatever I'll get into that in a second my point about Aaron Paul before I like forget um is just like 
not only does he like sort of like just he just lurks around the edges in this movie. Like that's all he does is yeah. like you'll see a scene of Christian Bale talking to little boy God, which we'll get into for sure. And then like they'll cut to Aaron Paul sort of like eavesdropping and looking suspicious. And that's sort of the extent of his story in this movie. He doesn't really get anything else to do. And, you know, as I am with many of the roles in this movie, I'm like, why do you did you bother casting this movie so, you know, glitzy? when that's all that he's going to do like it's yeah. it's insane Sigourney Weaver is the biggest example of that which is just like I get having the like whatever two scene cameo with the you know you know star who's bigger than the movie or whatever but like it's such a waste of Sigourney Weaver to have her just like skulk around for two scenes and like plant the bug in Ramsey's ear that he should kill Moses and like that's it also, at the time when Sigourney Weaver was in this, people were stoked because they thought that it was an alien reunion. And it's like, right. but she was also playing essentially the same function in 1492, Conquest of Paradise. Shout out right. to one of our very earliest episodes. That's right. I forgot about that. But um, like, there was a shot that when, the, when this trailer first came out, and this was like in the thick of the controversy of casting white people exclusively white people in the leads of this movie. Um, but Sigourney's only in the trailer for, like, one shot, and it's this, like, most, like, palace intrigue shot where she's just sort of, like, shot from the side, and her she's sort of just, like, her eye is opening and sort of, like, looking suspiciously and whatever, and it's so much, like, it was a crumb to anybody who was just, like, Sigourney Weaver's in this movie. And yet, mm-hmm. like, crumbs are, you know, will we'll eat up the crumbs if it's a fantastic actress in any kind of movie to look forward to. Yes. Uh, I... <laughs> okay, listeners. I, I love that voice. I love that little noise that escaped from you. Just, like, the, the Exodus Gods and Kings, like, whimper of just, like, uh that's that's what this movie is. It's um, it's really bad. Yeah, it is. Ridley Scott needs to stop making these movies, but he's not because we have one coming this year. Huh. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this movie, because of um, the pictures just came out online and people were super into it in a way that I thought was ironic, but I don't think it's ironic. Of like. Ben Affleck with Ex- bleach yeah, explain blonde. The movie. Explain what the bulk. movie is. It's the last duel. It is another like early century like battle epic from Ridley Scott. Reunites Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Adam Driver is also in it, like a vengeful Jesus with his wind, his hair blowing in the wind. And then Matt Damon has a blonde mullet. <laughs> and Ben Affleck has a bowl cut bleach blonde. I haven't like, seen these images. Parted Hold on down a the middle. I thought I sent you this picture. I will definitely send it to you. Um, it is so disturbing and upsetting to me. Not least of which because of all of these fashions that these men are serving, but also because Ridley Scott needs to be stopped at all costs. Oh, I <laughs> see it now. All oh, of these God. epic movies that nobody wants these things. It's so okay. So Adam Driver does indeed look like um, he's Thanks just like Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But his like his hair is very much sort of like long and flowy, and he's got the knight's costume and whatever. And 
Ben Affleck does indeed have the blonde version of the terrible Timothy Chalamet haircut from the King. And he and Matt Damon both have that like only chin beard thing that like, if you can picture that, it's all. And Matt Damon does have a mullet. And Matt Damon also is, has like, has a cape and cowl and is looking sort of like maybe Merlin or something like that, even though I know that's like not the milieu that we're in, but he looks like he might be like conjuring a spell or something. What's funny about that, because of course, like the logline for this movie is the dumbest thing, where it's like King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de whatever, something French, settled his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. So this is very much just like the, the title. Last one, apparently. Right, last apparently. Duel. The duel to end all duels. But here's what's funny. The very first movie that that uh, Ridley Scott ever directed in 1977 is called The Duelists, and that logline was, I thought, the craziest one ever, which was, <laughs> this is as it's written in IMDb, and I'm just going to le- read it verbatim. France, 1801. Due to a minor perceived slight, mild-mannered Lieutenant de Hubert is forced into a duel with the hot-headed, irrational Lieutenant Ferreau. The disagreement ultimately results in scores of duels spanning several years. What? Okay, that movie's supposed to be good. I have not seen it. Sure. I'm sure it is good, but also... Scores of duels throughout the years is very funny to me because it ima- I imagine just like these two people sort of like traipsing across Europe and slapping each other across the face with, with gloves, gloves and then dueling. Yeah. Very also, quirky St. Clair. You know that time in France. <laughs> yes. The tagline on the poster. Slap each other with their gloves. Quirky <laughs> St. Clair is the best. Um, the poster, the tagline is fencing is a science. Loving is a passion. Dueling is an obsession. The duelists. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. I need to see this movie immediately. Oh, oh God. And you know that it's just so... Sto- it's probably super stone-faced about all of this because Ridley Scott Ridley movies Scott. are all so completely serious. Like, Matchstick we- Men is the exception, but yes. Matchstick Men is the exception. Hannibal's kind of the exception. Well, Shout but in a bad way, Hannibal but yeah. Episode. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, between Ridley this Scott, movie, man. Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood. Bet you forgot mm-hmm. that Ridley Scott did a Robin Hood movie a few uh, years ago. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I just... It's a lot. It's a lot of the same kind of a thing. For sure, and and these movies don't make that much money, and they keep giving him money. To fourteen ninety two, as you mentioned, also is sort of like is under yeah. that umbrella. Ridley Scott is the thing with Ridley Scott is he makes a lot of movies. He directs a lot of movies. A he lot directs of movies. on us on. A, if he doesn't direct a movie in one year, he'll probably do two the next year. Like that's sort of his thing. And so from the time. 1492 Conquest of Paradise is 1992, and then he doesn't make another movie for four years. The next movie is White Squall in 1996. But, like, starting there, White Squall 96, G.I. Jane 97. Twinks on a boat. Twinks on a boat. Man, we could talk about the role that White Squall played in my teenage sexual development, or we couldn't. Um, G.I. Jane 1997, Gladiator 2000, Hannibal 01, Black Hawk Down also 01, Matchstick Men 03, Kingdom of Heaven 05, a good year, 06. Nobody remembers a good year. Russell Crowe, Marion Cotillard, um, Vineyard movie. In yeah. and out of theaters in two weeks. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, like, the Oscar buzz, like, that was 
there was definite Oscar buzz around a good year for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, American Gangster 07, well received, good you know, good job. Body of Lies 08, total crash, total this had Oscar buzz. Robin Hood 2010, everybody like audibly groaned at the idea of like needing a Robin Hood movie in 2010. And then we got a bunch more five years later. Right. Uh, Prometheus 2012, huge expectation. I think a lot of people were let down by that, although there's certainly pockets of people who definitely stick up for that movie, and I respect I those like people. I like that movie. I'm very much in the middle about that movie. I really get why people were just like, that's your movie, like, that's it. But, like, it takes some swings, and I appreciate that. Speaking of taking some swings, The Counselor in 2013, which is a mess, but, like, I respect its audacity in a way, but, like, it, it's bad. It's we'll absolutely bad. have to do an episode on that eventually. Exodus Gods and Kings in 2014, which you think, like, oh, my God, like, things are so bad for Ridley Scott. And then literally the next year he directs The Martian, Best Picture nominee. Um, doesn't get a Best Director nomination, though, right? That's That was the sort mm-hmm. of – he was expected to and he didn't. Um Alien Covenant in 2017, which I have a lot of, like, micro problems with, but I enjoyed on a, on a macro level, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. This was the movie that, like, promised, like, there's a gay couple, and then you watch it, and it literally, if you Is turn Michael your head Fassbender for... Fassbender Michael Fassbender? No, but, like, it should be. Um, it's one of those things where, like, if you turn your head to, like, you know, glance at your popcorn for half a second, you will miss the gay content in that movie, which is, like, a trend in things, and it's bad, and it made me mad. It made me angry. Um, 2017, also, All the Money in the World, with all of that controversy... Um, ultimately replacing Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer. And it, like, paid off with an Oscar nomination, which is insane. Which is a little bit like an Oscar nomination that was, like, at least 10% of that was fuck you, Kevin Spacey. But, like... Sure. I like that movie a lot. I don't know if I would go with a lot. I did. Um, I liked it a lot. Okay. I didn't. But I didn't hate it. Um, And then the last duel will be the next movie. So it's, it's, it's been an unusually long break for Ridley Scott. Um... And this is not even getting into, you know, the pre-1492. I don't know why I used 1492 Conquest of Paradise as the line of demarcation. Because, like, the year before it was Thelma and Louise. Which was also, I feel like, across his career, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, um, I guess American Gangster, The Martian. Those are sort of, like, the high water points. And obviously Alien mm-hmm. in 1979, which is, like, the movie Blade in Runner. many ways. Yeah, and yeah, Blade yeah. Runner in 82. Thank you. God, I'm so stupid. Why am I so stupid? That I you decided so to just, stupid. like, jump right in after Alien and Blade Runner, the two movies that kind of defined his career. Although, weirdly, sorry, this is a big We've one. We've already talked sometimes. about that in 1490, our 1492 episodes. So Thank you. Fine. All right. Um, also, you need to put some respect on Legend's name. Do I? Uh, that movie is wild. I love that movie. That movie is so stupid. <laughs> I never, I know a lot of people sort of like grew up and like was, Legend was one of the movies that they sort of like watched when they were a kid because it's a PG movie and whatever. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. never did. So all of it just seems weird to me. Every time I see like Tim Curry with the weird like devil monster makeup or whatever, I'm just like, that seems scary for kids. Like, I don't know how <laughs> I would have reacted to that. At- okay, but in the realm of, like, Ridley Scott movies that are not good, that he is taking probably 15 times way more seriously than he should, like, it works for Legend, for whatever reason. That makes sense, I guess. That does make like, sense. Like, that movie is part of why it's so weird and so, like, like mind-numbingly watchable is mm-hmm. that it is kind of pretentious and, I don't know. Yeah. It's like this weird artifact that I find so compelling. No, that makes sense. 
Um, and it's and it and it definitely fits in the Ridley Scott early career. Like he was such a genre director in mm-hmm. his early part in his career, and that's why the fact that he's sort of. I think when we talked about Curtis Hansen when we did um, the In Her Shoes episode, I gave a lot of praise to Curtis Hansen for not ever being easily pegged by a genre or a even like a style, right? And mm-hmm. like that to me was a huge feather in Curtis Hansen's cap. And I thought he was, you know, we I've been listening to a lot of the blank check episodes on Jonathan Demi the last couple months. And like, what's one of the great things I love about Demi that like genre wise, you really could never, you know, pigeonhole him into anything. And I think Ridley Scott is sort of the same way. He has like his like three or four types of movies, right? But they're all very different types. And every once in a while, he'll just like do something like a matchstick man that is just sort of just like, oh, that doesn't seem like a Ridley Scott movie. And I I guess with him, with, with Ridley Scott, because he makes so many movies, I'm always just like, what like what what are you doing? Like what's the What's the through line here? What's the purpose here? What are you attracted to when you make movies? And mm-hmm. I kind of still don't get it. I think there's a lot of like visual symmetry in his movies in a way that while watching Exodus Gods and Kings, this was the first time I'd seen it. I did not pay to see this movie in the theater. No. Um, you just he has a certain visual style that mirrors his other movies so much in a way that Watching it, I was like, I've already seen this movie before. Not mm-hmm. because it's the Exodus story and there's other versions of that, but like the way that the movie is structured and the way the narrative like kind of unfolds and the way that he shoots things mm-hmm. has such a sameness to it that at this point makes a movie that's already kind of boring on the page even more boring to me. He really does like epic scenes of battle or at least like you know lots of armed people on Mm -hmm. beaches you know what i mean there's a scene like that in robin hood there's a scene like that in um i guess 1492 sort of like there's obviously scenes of them like arriving on the shores kingdom of heaven has that stuff kingdom of heaven has that stuff yeah so i it doesn't really count as a theme in a story, but you're right in that like there are visual elements that do. It reminded me a lot of the visuals of Prometheus, to be honest, even though like Prometheus Mm. has this like air of intrigue and danger to it that Exodus never really conjures up that like, I don't know. You could tell that those were the same filmmaker to me. Watching Exodus, my, my main takeaway of this was Somebody thought that the Bible story of Moses and the Exodus and everything that we've sort of like seen in other movies and, you know, been taught if we're religious people, if we're, you know, either Christian or Jewish and um, thought that the thing that it was missing were epic battle scenes. Like there's the scene (laughs) in the beginning where Moses saves Ramses's life in a battle and that's supposed to like fulfill the prophecy of whatever whatever and Um, also partial agnosticism (laughs) yes and a petulant teenager playing god yes but like the, the the battle scene at the beginning goes on forever and it's just sort of this like exists seemingly for its own sake and ultimately I'm just like, is this what we thought this story was missing? And that that's what required making a movie of this in 2014 was that like we needed epic sort of like, you know, Lord of the Rings style, expansive CGI 
battle scenes and that do nothing, that add nothing. There's so much, like, all the least interesting parts about this movie are the battle scenes. At least the other things, the parts that I mentioned with the plagues and whatnot, are at least peculiar enough to, you know, sort of pique my interest. And just, like, what is he trying to say? What is he trying to say with these, like, plagues? But, like, with the battles, it really just feels like, oh, like, you know, we wanted to make this cool and you know, that, like, young boys would want to come and see this movie, which, like, <laughs> hilarious. Like, kids don't want to go to school. Or that it's a Christmas release, and it's like, this is what we will get. Like, it doesn't even feel like they're trying to, like, appeal to... They're certainly not trying to appeal, but it doesn't seem like getting a religiously-minded audience plays as a factor into this right it feels like they're more so just chasing a lord of the rings right it feels like it feels like like, a yeah yeah, it it takes religion almost entirely out of the movie to the point where it plays moses's conversations with god which in other films have been depicted by him talking to a burning bush and again i bring up the ten commandments because it's charlton heston and all of his like dramatic bullshit Talking this to time it's a Cameron Bright lookalike. <laughs> uh, but like in the Ten Commandments, it's Charlton Heston with all of his dramatic bullshit talking to a burning bush with the voice of Charlton Heston, which is just like ridiculous. Which is what the Prince of Egypt does sense. as well. Yes. Um, and well, I, I mean, I think that's much more sort of like straight from the Bible. And mm-hmm. This movie is just like, well, not only are going to are we going to, Chris, as you mentioned, make it a Cameron Bright lookalike child playing God, but also we're going to the effect of that is going to be that like Aaron Paul sort of like looks at him askance and sees just this like man talking to himself and wonder if this is just like, oh, this messianic figure, Moses, was going crazy in the desert and thought he had talked to God and yada yada and was hallucinating this boy or whatever. And that was a lot of, um, before the movie came out where like Christian Bale had given this quote where he said, talked about like playing Moses as a schizophrenic or a, you know, sort of person who was out of his mind a little bit because this movie was so intent on taking all of the religion out of the movie. And that was a big, like controversial statement. What a leap of a statement, too, because Christian Bale's basically doing nothing. Oh, Speaking of which, so we much maybe nothing. need to do a 60-second plot description. We maybe do. We're very much... Maybe in... we're taking it a little bit for granted that it's like the Exodus story has been told so much. Right, that yeah. people might be... Yeah. You know, like, you might know the story, but let's but... get into the specifics of Exodus Gods and Kings. Right. Uh, directed by Ridley Scott. <laughs> right, written Goldie. by four screenwriters, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, Adam Cooper, Bill Collage, Jeffrey Kane, and Steven Zalian, who just feels like is Ridley Scott's guy? Or, like, maybe he's just, like, a Hollywood major director, like, script, script doctor. Polisher. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah. He's also done great work as well. Yeah. Um, but, obviously, we mentioned Christian Bale, Joel Edgerton, Ben Mendelsohn, Sigourney Weaver, Aaron Paul, John Turturro, Hi, I'm a Boss, who we love, uh, Ben Kingsley, and Maria Valverde. The movie opened wide December 12th of 2014. Joseph. Yes. If you could give us a plot-centric 60-second description for those who might not be familiar or just need a refresher on the story of Mm -hmm. Exodus Gods and Kings. I am ready to do that. All right. 
Your 60-second plot description for Exodus Gods and Kings starts now. Okay, so Moses is essentially the nephew of the Egyptian pharaoh, um, played uh, at the beginning of this movie by John Turturro, and he's sort of like liked a little bit better than Ramses, his his adopted cousin. Um, and the pharaoh ultimately decides to sort of like pits the two of them against each other. And when the pharaoh dies, then Ramses, as the you know natural born son and next leader, decides to trump out Moses and uses this prophecy or this story that like Moses is really a Hebrew who was uh, 30 seconds found in a river and raised and whatever. So like they send Moses out, they try to kill him, he doesn't get killed, and he essentially goes into the wilderness and he ends up leading the Hebrews. Uh, in Egypt as uh, their sort of like revolutionary quest to get out. And there are like a billion plagues and like, are, is there a reason for them that is not religious? Who knows? And so ultimately after all seconds. the Egyptian firstborns are killed, they chase the Hebrews out and they cross the Red Sea and then all the Egyptians get killed in the Red Sea. And then the, the Hebrews move on and they eventually and that's time. make it to their destination. Okay, so uh, to start from the top, uh, to do our usual curly cue around what's going on in a movie, this th- th- you when you're talking about like this battle that serves nothing and is so super long at the very beginning of this movie, it tells you exactly what this movie is and what it's going to be and what its perspective is. That it's a Moses story that starts with a battle versus the like baby in a basket floating down the river, right? That all of the other stories start with. Yes. So it's like I even had to like catch my bearings when we were starting it because I was like, wait, what? Because you don't. It's really confusing to figure out who Moses is at the beginning because like the first act of this movie is very like palace intrigue, very which much I actually so. found like kind of an interesting idea. I would have like, liked if I they don't had. Want to see... Yeah, I would have liked to have seen them invest more in that. Yeah. Especially because you have Sigourney Weaver and Hayam uh, Abbas as uh, Sigourney Weaver playing Ramses's mother and Hayam Abbas playing uh, Moses's mother, as it turns out, Moses' adopted mm-hmm. mother. Um, that would have been great. That would have been fucking great to see the two of them square off more. Mm-hmm. Instead, we get Joel Edgerton with his snakes. Joel Edgerton, who is a who is an actor I like, and who is you know a director I find actually really interesting. Um, is on one in this movie in a way that I find momentarily fascinating. There's a scene where he sort of like sticks his hand into a pit of snakes and grabs one and sort of like devenomizes it. And he is like doing the most in every respect. He's just like really over the top. And I'm just like, I, I, that's when I texted you and I was just like, what in bloody hell is Joel Edgerton doing in this movie? But at least I was sort of, you know, amused by it and entertained by it. And ultimately he's just like, He's he for the rest of the movie, he just sort of has this face on him that he just sort of like looks out at the plagues and is just like, well, there's another one. Like it's it's so <laughs> weird. It's so it, it's there's no recognizable human behavior in there in there. And when I again compare it to the Ten Commandments and like Yul Brynner was in that movie, like pitching to the rafters. Okay, here's what I, here's my here's what I'm going to pitch to you right now, Chris. Okay, give it. I'm going to talk about the Ten Commandments a lot in this movie because, A, I didn't like this movie, and, B, I fucking love the Ten Commandments. And we're going to talk about things we like. While you do that, I will talk about the Prince of Egypt. Right. Okay. So I'm going to set my phone for a 15-minute alarm, and every 15 minutes, I'm going to allow myself to break in and say one thing about the Ten Commandments that I want you listeners to, like, 
go and watch the Ten Commandments this year. It'll be on ABC every year. They show it at some point between, you know, some point some point before Easter, and it'll be good for you. So I'm setting my and alarm right now. Y'all can figure out where you're going to watch the Prince of Egypt. It's somewhere. It's somewhere you can find it. All right, I'm starting the alarm in 15 minutes. We will break in for Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt talk. Fantastic. Okay. Anyway, back to Exodus, Gods and Kings. Yes. Which is a weird title for a movie that seems to sort of be disinterested slash hostile to the idea of, like, God. Well, apparently it was a studio ad for that, like, subtitle. Ridley Scott originally just wanted to call it Moses. Then it got changed to Exodus. Which maybe also would have been weird. Search engine optimization reasons, considering there's already an Oscar-winning movie called Exodus. Yes. It became Exodus, Gods and Kings. Even calling it Moses would have been weird because this movie takes great pains to let you know that as soon as his Hebrew um, ancestry is uncovered, they just call him Moshe for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I don't know. It's so intent on uh, sort of pulling back the veneer of anything sort of fantastical that... It's just kind of drab in a lot of places, and it's just kind of dull in a lot of places. just, like, silly, ultimately, because, like, the parting of the Red Sea, too, this, like, to try to remove any religious context from it, they're like, what if it was a bunch of tsunamis happening? That's the thing, yeah. To explain it, and it's like, it's, that's, it's very silly. That's what the Um, plagues, too, they were just like, what if one year there were just more crocodiles than usual in the Nile. And that is why there was a lot of blood in the water, and that is why all the fish died, and that is why all the bugs came. And they they what have... What mad cow disease? Right. And they have... They actually cast Ewan Bremer from, uh, from Train Spotting as this guy whose essential role is to be, like, the court explainer guy who they keep cutting to, and he's just like, all right, well, the, the rational explanation for all these plagues is this and this and this and this. And, like... It comes across as quasi-comedic, and yet the purpose of it is to just sort of, again, make the plagues seem as dull as possible, even though, like, Queen Nefertiri is, like, waking up in her bed covered in, like, thousands of frogs, which I thought was really kind of (laughs) funny, but also um, terrifying to imagine as something that might happen in the real world. And, like, everything, all of the plagues are just, like, played for maximum disgustingness, which is a choice, and, like, go with it. Like, I think the whole thing with the plagues, to me, I think I wrote down, I was like, the way he's chosen to depict the plagues is a real choice. And, like, I can at least respect that, even though I don't think it ultimately adds up to much. The sores are, like... Yeah. crusty sugar on their skin. <laughs> I know I look good in my uh, leprosy print. It's all just kind of about intellectualizing the Exodus mm. story into something that ultimately makes it s- stupid and like kind of kills the spectacle of it. Yeah. Um, and and so. the spectacle of it is the whole point of doing the Exodus story. To me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the only reason why we really still talk about this. It's also a little bit like 
clearly they had in mind that they're making this PG-13 movie. I think there's a certain level of Ridley Scott grimness that kind of has to necessitate an R rating. Because you think of something like Prometheus or Mm -hmm. like some of these other movies, like the tone that he strikes with this type of movie, like always has this undercurrent of violence to it, right? But that feels Mm -hmm. removed from the equation in this. So I would also say the the big failing of this movie is I think for a movie like this to really work, you need to have a really strong relationship between Moses and Ramses, between Christian Bale and Joel Edgerton's characters. And I don't, I didn't see it. I, yeah. Throughout the whole movie. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. Um, it, it really is... Is there much more to their relationship than, like, you mentioned the, like, de-venoming scene where it feels like it's this intimidation tactic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then they don't share the screen again. Well, they have the scene where Ramses brings out Miriam, who is their sort of caregiver nurse character from, like, when both of those boys were children, who turns out to be Moses' sister, who, Mm -hmm. like, put him into the basket in the river and whatnot. Um but then they don't meet again until like Moses sort of sneaks back into the city and gets the jump on Ramses and gives him that ultimatum. But there's, I don't know. It never feels like the, 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 it's this sort of tense pitched rivalry between them beyond what the story sort of like lays out for us. I don't Mm -hmm. feel it. I don't feel it in the two performances at all. You maybe lose a little bit of that by, like, trying to make this a little bit more of a palace intrigue type story like Mm. we talked about. Um, But, yeah, it doesn't feel like the movie's even kind of going for that. Yeah. Which also kind of leaves, to me, their performances floundering a little bit because, yeah, Joel Edgerton's a little crazy in this. And I definitely want to talk about Joel Edgerton's, like, career in terms of Oscar and everything. Yeah. Um, But, like, Christian Bale feels like such an empty choice to cast as Moses. It's a it's a dull choice, I think. That anecdote about him talking uh, of Moses in terms of being a potential schizophrenic is very bizarre to me because it's not like he's even playing that necessarily right. as a character beat. Like it's it's very um not undimensional like if Moses is supposed to be hallucinating God, the movie does not walk us to that door very effectively because it doesn't Mm -mm. seem like he's exhibiting any other signs of like mania. Right. Right. Which he could be because he's this, you know, acting as this messianic kind of figure leading the Hebrews out of um, their slavery and whatever. Like there are ways to play that role as, you know, with a lot of mania, even without negating this idea of him as a genuine figure who genuinely sees God. But if you want to play him as somebody who is maybe seeing God or maybe hallucinating this child who he thinks of as God, you got to give me more than what Christian Bale is even asked to give in this movie. Certainly he doesn't, he's not giving anything extra in his performance to make me feel like, Oh, maybe he is seeing things. It's the only really the fact that Joshua is look is, spying on him and sort of like looking at him through cockeyed uh you know a cockeyed glance that makes me wonder about that there's nothing within the bail performance that makes me think of that at all 
And he doesn't get the added benefit of eyeliner. <laughs> that is true. Like Joel Edgerton, Ben Mendelsohn, Ben Mendelsohn, who is fully coded as gay in this movie. Oh, for real. Like what, when we when we'll talk about the Ten Commandments, I'll, I'll get to Vincent Price because like that's the most that's the big analog that I find is like Ben Mendelsohn. We want to we want you to play as close to Vincent Price without doing a vocal impersonation as possible. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely coded as gay. At one point, he definitely offers to blow Christian Bale, right? Like, that's a thing where he was just like, I forget the, the verbiage he used, but it's very much just like, I could do this for you or I could do whatever you want. And I was just like, oh, so you just like hold yourself out for Moses. Cool. Fun. We call that a blow-mo. Listen, uh-huh. if this movie decided to make Moses into, you know, just throwing dick around to get what he wants. I think that's a valid change and would find that to be an audacious kind of movie. It's not a Ridley Scott change. Ridley no, it is Scott's not. Scott's movies are pretty sexless. Well, as I mean, I mentioned the thing about uh, Alien Covenant. I can't, like, what are the other, I mean, Thelma and Louise is the really the only other thing and that certainly wasn't coming from Ridley Scott's perspective. The, the Yeah, like Prometheus and Alien Covenant are movies that are filled with nothing but hot people. Right. And like hot people who do have sex in those movies. Yeah. And it's still so sexless. Yeah. Um kind of the point, but Sure. Um anyway. Anyway. Um If we haven't lost you at Sexual Favors Moses. Um, Which really, we should have gotten you on board with sexual favors, yeah, we Moses, got, as far as I'm concerned. Should have gotten Ridley Scott on board with that. What did you think of Totoro in his couple scenes as uh, Ramses II? Um, I, I, I immediately. Or, sorry, Ramses the first. He's Ramses the first. Joel Edgerton's Ramses the uh, second. My sure. bad. Um, I'm surprised that you did not recognize him because the first thought that came to my mind after like the opening, uh, you know, title cards of like. I forget what it said, but it was something, like, ridiculous. Um, Very, like, Ridley Scott grim. The first thought that even entered my mind was John Turturro eyeliner. Um, (laughs) It's a good trivia team name. John Turturro eyeliner, yes. Um... I mean, he he's not in the movie very much. It's it's definitely one of those... Ben Kingsley is the same, where, like, they're not really in it that much, so it's, like, it's, again, just trying to, like, have this air of prestige just by casting. This is kind of where I want to go in talking about the casting controversy that it was all, like, whitewashing these biblical figures because what does it really serve this movie to have recognizable faces? Right. Because it's just like, they're there for two seconds, especially like Sigourney Weaver. Yes. Certainly in the supporting cast, it makes very little sense as to why all of these other people are white. It doesn't, this movie did not need Turturro, Aaron Paul, Sigourney Weaver, Ben Kingsley, even though Ben Kingsley is like famously like a history of being able to play all nationalities, like his debut in Gandhi, you know, sort of, you know, paved the way for that. But yeah, because the the whole thing with that controversy was Ridley Scott being like with, you know, super indignant. Right. But if you take away the indignant tone of what he was saying, he his his main 
message was just like, look, the realities of this business were that I would not have been able to secure the budget that I would have needed to make this movie if I didn't have a movie star as the lead. And so I needed... you just don't make the movie because it clearly didn't make the movie any better. Agreed. But I do feel like there is, at the very least, you know, the sobering reality of Hollywood. Like, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me that just like... It, you have to like it's it's, uh, it's he's trying sad. to indicate the racism elsewhere of what he's doing i just kind of think that just means you don't get your movie made i mean i guess that's true but i also feel like if you're cu- if if i'm putting myself in the shoes of these directors i get why that's like not an option we're like right. not making the art isn't isn't an acceptable solution to that. And just like, I feel like this one's maybe just a different oh, circumstance. Oh, we got our, we put got a our pin timer. in that. We will return to that discussion. Okay. Uh, Joseph, is... tell me something you like about the 10 commandments. So the thing about the 10 commandments, just to set the stage, 1956 film, um, directed by Cecil B. DeMille of, you know, Meryl Streep's great speech at the golden globes fame. Um, it's three hours and 40 minutes long it takes forever whenever it's on abc they like started at seven o'clock and they're just like you're gonna go to bed whenever you go to bed um but it's i watched it every year with my dad my dad and my brother and i think also my sister but at the very least my dad my brother and i would watch it every year on abc it is something that i grew up with so i didn't really clock it for as campy as it was but then i watched it last year when it was on again, ABC, and I was sort of tweeting about it, and I was just like, "Holy Moses!" Not to, no pun intended. Hey, weirdly enough, um, can't believe that's the first time we said that this episode. <laughs> um, it's so fucking campy, and it's so it's a delight to watch. Again, it takes forever, but just like just park yourself in the room with it and just have it on. And every time Ann Baxter shows up as Nefertiri, just like perk up your ears, kids, because she is giving you. Everything you want. She brings it to you every ball. I don't know why you're gagging. Like, she has the most... She's... In 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 the Ten Commandments, which is not the case in Exodus, Gods, and Kings, Nefertiri, who is the wife of Ramses II, is also, like, hot and heavy for Moses in a huge way. So, like, so much of this movie is she's just, like, sneering at Ramses and then turns around and is just, like, hands all up in Moses' chest and whatever. And even when he comes back after being, like, out in the wilderness with the Hebrews and whatever, and he's got the new wife and whatever, and she's just, like... A shepherd girl. What can she be to you? Unless the desert sun has dulled your senses. Does she grate garlic on her skin? Or is it soft as mine? Are her lips chafed and dry as the desert sand? Or are they moist and red like a pomegranate? Is it the fragrance of myrrh that scents her hair? Or is it the odor of sheep? When All About Eve is your second, like, queerest movie, when it's just, like, when, like, (laughs) everything she's giving you in this movie is so campy and so delicious. Just, like, absolutely delicious. But you're food for the gods. And I'm going to have all of you. None of me. Did you think my kiss was a promise of what you'll have? No, my pompous one was to let you know what you will not have. 
I could never love you. And it's like, be, I get why the fact that it's a movie called The Ten Commandments and is has been sort of this, like, pigeonholed as this religious movie, this, you know, very, you know, Bible Ben-Hur-esque movie, even though Ben-Hur has its own very rich history of homoeroticism. Like, talk to Gore Vidal about that if you want to. Um, but, like, for whatever reason, we've passed over the Ten Commandments. We've passed over. That was also a pun not intended. But God damn it, I'm on a roll today. Um, <laughs> this movie, as, like, a camp classic, even though, and I will revisit this in further 15-minute installments, um, just watch it for Ann Baxter. At one point, she calls an old servant woman a puckered old persimmon, and I wanted to truly just death drop from there. It's so <laughs> freaking wonderful, and you should watch it. And, again... At three hours and 40 minutes, it's only really an hour longer than Exodus Gods and Kings, and yet it's so much better, like, by magnitude. All right. Talk to me about The Prince of Egypt, Chris. The Prince of Egypt is the movie that Exodus Gods and Kings wants to be because, like, even though it's an animated movie, it was the first animated movie DreamWorks did, it is, like, part of the reason why I think it didn't make even more money than it made because it was a $100 million movie, but, like, even at the time, like, that could, it could have made more money is, like, it's fairly serious minded and I don't really know how it's really chasing a child audience like it, right. it really still feels a little bit more like an animated movie for adults it's gorgeous um, but it has a full uh, Stephen Schwartz score which Stephen Schwartz legend icon historian when you believe is a legit is a legit song I've yeah like let's just make my first point here be about oh, when you believe We are not afraid Although we know there's much to fear We were moving mountains long Before we knew we could Oh, yes There can be miracles When you believe Though hope is free but yeah, when you believe to me is just sort of like, oh, it's a it's a it's a Whitney song, it's a Mariah song. Weirdly, it's a song that like doesn't get a whole ton of respect because even as a ballad, it's very kind of um stayed a little bit and melodramatic, but like that's only lyrically. That's only really like when you talk about and the fact that like the lyrics are like weirdly about like faith and whatever, and that's off putting for a lot of people. But just like have some faith in those runs, honey, because like holy God. Yes. It's, it's, 
it's just like it's a competition that was such a weird interesting time in history where like we knew that there was all this talk about how Whitney and Mariah had this rivalry and they kind of hated each other and yet they went through this whole entire tour this press tour of just like no we don't hate each other we love each other we we had a you know wonderful time and respect each other and yet the underlying implication was always that there was this rivalry the MTV Video Music Awards had them both show up in like identical dresses and played off of that idea of just like it's these like two warring divas so they got a lot of like mileage out of that and the song kind of sets itself up in that way too where but it doesn't feel like they're competing necessarily in the song it's just like it's the accumulation of both of their power a little bit Um, but let's go back to the casting controversy the casting. because I feel like here's here's how I feel like it's a little different because like yes it sucks and like that's a it's a shitty compromise but like like you're saying that's the nature of what the business is or at least was six years ago when this movie came out yeah or like maybe it's gotten a little bit better the difference to me is. That is Ridley Scott saying it. Ridley Scott, who basically proves he can get whatever movie made he wants to get made. That's super it fair. feels disingenuous that, like, he couldn't make yeah. another movie. Ridley Scott you know, throwing like, his arms up and being like, but what could I do? Like, right. you're an incredibly also, powerful like, figure in Hollywood. Yeah. His other follow-ups, too, like, kind of brushed aside people who were legitimately upset with this. Like, he's quoted as saying, get a life. Right. Which, I mean, yes. I think think a lot of those comments are probably directed towards, you know, these sort of Twitter hordes. And, like, I get saying get a life to those people in many regards. But, like, it really is glossing over tremendously important and like pertinent criticisms of this criticisms of both the movie and Hollywood in general. And ultimately the controversy, I don't know. I don't think Exodus gods and Kings is an Oscar movie in general. I'm just now noticing that in the document you wrote Exodus gods, ellipses and Kings uh, for the perfect Goldie Hawn uh, pronunciation of it. Um, I don't think Exodus Gods and Kings is an Oscar movie anyway, but I feel like this controversy did kind of kill it in the crib, right? Yeah, and it might have... I don't think that it killed it in terms of box office because I do ultimately think this is a movie nobody wanted. Right. But, like, Ridley Scott makes an any movie, really, these days that's not an alien movie... And, like, it's automatically going to be in some type of predictive Oscar conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, And even just watching this movie, it, this is a, such an interesting Oscar year. I think this was a December that a lot of things that had that kind of anticipation kind of disappointed. Yeah. Um, but even watching this movie, like, it could have just as easily been a costume design nominee. It could have just as easily been an art direction nominee or a sound nominee. Yeah. 
I'm looking back through the Ridley Scott filmography, and, and with the exception of the Alien sequels, I'm having a very hard time finding a movie that didn't have Oscar buzz because it was the new Ridley Scott movie. And, like, mm-hmm. um, The Counselor did, Robin Hood did, Body of Lies did. Like, I think you have to go we back. keep getting fooled. Yeah. I <laughs> like, mean, even... it's only... Um, uh, American Gangster got nominated for things. Uh, it got two nominations. Black Hawk Down got a director nomination and a bunch of techs. Um, yeah. And all the money in the world. And and obviously The Martian. The Martian's a huge success. And I huge think partly success. why The Martian works for him is because even though it is still a genre movie, it's it's a little bit different like he feels like he's flexing a little bit muscle uh different muscles it's fresher it yeah. is funny like i don't know no it's true i think uh, you are constantly being fooled yeah you have to go back i want to say you have to go back to like white squall to find a movie and i bet you even then that year people were like i don't know jeff bridges it's dead poet society on a boat like that kind of thing um because even, like, G.I. Jane was getting some kind of Best Actress buzz for Demi Moore because of the physical transformation. Before it opened, yeah. It was such a huge, like, and even, like, Viggo Mortensen was, like, getting such great reviews. And, like, that was absolutely, you know, touted as a contender for a while. I definitely remember that, especially about Demi Moore. I remember people talking about Nicolas Cage for Matchstick Men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was a great... That was a great performance. That's a that's a really underrated movie, actually, if we're talking about, like... I need to see that movie. I mean, that was during the peak um, Sam Rockwell is underrated period, where, like, only re- people who were, like, really into movies knew who Sam Rockwell was. You had to be, like, really into, like, Galaxy Quest or, you know, had to be of a mindset to, like, stick up for the Charlie's Angels movie, which he's so fantastic in. Um... Yeah, Matchstick Men's super fun, super cool. Ellison mm. Lohman. That's another sort of like, <laughs> that movie could have Come only hap- happened within that very narrow Ellison Lohman window. Before she was dragged to hell. Before she was dragged to hell and literally never seen again. It's insane. It's incredibly uh, art imitates life, for sure. Do you want to talk about Joel Edgerton for a bit? Okay, so Joel Edgerton, you mentioned that you thought he was on one in this movie. This is kind of. It's a little interesting to talk about it because it was more promoted for Christian Bale than Joel Edgerton. However, mm-hmm. Joel Edgerton, like at this point in his career, is one of those up and coming actors that is like all feels all but certain he will have an Oscar nomination at some point. Like, yes. As either uh, an actor or a director. Well, but he hadn't directed at this point. Oh, I thought the, you meant his, I thought you meant now, like uh, from our perspective oh, I, now. I still think the conversation is there now, but he's just not acting as much. Right. Um, but like started all with Animal Kingdom, which like obviously got Jackie Weaver a nomination and on the map, and then followed that up with Warrior, mm-hmm. which obviously got Nick Nolte, Joe's favorite Oscar nomination. Um In fact, Exodus in many ways, its greatest accomplishment is being an Animal Kingdom uh reunion between Joel Edgerton and Ben Mendelssohn. That is very true. Um Animal anyway. Kingdom's kind of like a fascinating. Animal like, Kingdom's fucking great. Yeah, it's a good movie. Good it's, movie. It's it's amazing how much how much fruit has been born from that movie, considering it was such a Aussie gritty. Like I remember seeing that movie and being like, "Man, Ben Mendelsohn's great. Too bad nobody in America is ever going to know." And like I was proven very wrong, and happily so. 
Very happily so. And the young kid um, in that ends up being in the Lezos movie with um, Robin Wright and and Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah. Right? Wait, that's a lesbian movie? They'll think we're Lezos, the movie. Right? Um, oh. Remember? I thought you were talking about the movie. Maybe that's not Naomi Watts. It's definitely Robin Wright and another actress where they- Am I mixing up two movies? Like, fuck each other's sons or something? Yeah, isn't that- Hold on. Are we conflating two movies? Let me look it up very quickly. Robin Wright. Anyway, Joel Edgerton uh, keeps like getting larger things and closer to Oscar, like Zero Dark Thirty and Great Gatsby. And then this comes along, which really kind of kickstarts it into, or at least the thought of he's getting even closer to an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. Some of these movies that would come from this, I think he's kind of actively bad in, um, like Black Mass. Oh, he got some he's very for. bad in Black Mass. A lot of people are very bad in Black Mass, but he's definitely one of them. Uh, loving, he's kind of a non-entity to me. He directs The Gift and Boy Erased. Boy Erased, his performance in it, I think, is actively bad. But I think, I, I watched I liter- I watched some of Boy Erased yesterday. It was on HBO yesterday. I think that's uh-huh. a movie we underrated as a both as a filmmaking community and also as, like, the gay community. I feel like that movie did better things than we were um, willing to give it credit for at the time, up to and including the fact that it's a movie that very easily could have hinged on letting his father off of the hook at the end. Mm -hmm. And it makes a very kind of daring decision not to. Daring, I say, in a way that, like, when mainstream audiences watch that movie, I bet you they feel like that movie is too hard on the Russell Crowe character. And I think it hold it sticks to its guns and it's just like, no, we are going to end this movie on the perspective of this kid rather than, you know, forgiveness for his father. And I like that. I think I think that's interesting and that's probably true. One thing I think about that movie, even though I don't care for it, is that like that was a failure of like promotion to me where it's Mm -hmm. like, it sets this expectation the way that that movie was promoted from the trailers and everything, all the marketing materials that it's going to be this big, like emotionally cathartic, huge, like mountains of feeling for this movie. And it's actually a rather kind of understated, like non, I don't want to say non-confrontational, but it's not like, I don't know. I, I think it's, much more interested in being a low-key version of what it is, which, like, I I respect and I admire, but, like, I don't think it was given any favors the way that that movie was promoted. That's probably fair. Anyway, I have a lot of faith in him as a director. I think The Gift especially is um, really clever and insidious in a way that I find very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think... For as much as, as you mentioned, he's sort of, you know, maybe waxes and wanes as an actor, I think he's great in something like The Great Gatsby, which I don't think is a uniformly great movie, but I feel like he's giving you sort of like dastardly villain but in a see, way that I here, want. But see, here, this is what he's good at. He's good at some like broad stroke gaucheness, but like rarely is that ever aligned in what the movie is doing because like I think he is being incredibly broad in something like Black Mass, but that movie is very serious minded. Mm-hmm. Whereas like he's incredibly broad in The Great Gatsby, but so is the movie. Right. Like the movie is so garish in all of it that it makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I think on balance, I like Joel Edgerton. I think a lot of times he gets sort of lumped into um, sort of nondescript, why does he get all these roles, sort of like Jeremy Renner territory, which I also yeah. will probably stick up for Jeremy Renner more times than not, but like that's a whole other discussion. Um, I don't know. I think he's good. I think he's cast in a lot of roles based off of that Animal Kingdom template of kind of mm-hmm. – gruff taciturn sort of you know moody kind of people i think exodus weirdly is a role that should have been able to break him out of that because there's so much potential for grandiosity in ramses but besides you're right besides that sort of like that snake snake devenoming scene it's just a lot of him staring vacantly out of uh coal smeared eyes and, like, that's the type of role that keeps getting him, like, thought of for Oscar in this way and, like, people predicting him for things. But it's, like, that's not necessarily what he's best at. He just gets constantly cast as that. Agreed. Um, I... it's, it'll be interesting to watch his career evolve because I do think he's an interesting director. One thing he has coming up, he's going to be in Barry Jenkins's Underground Railroad series. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what a director like Barry Jenkins, who's so incredible with actors, can bring out of him. Yes. Also wanted to break in here. Uh, Adore, 2013's Adore, is the movie where a pair of childhood friends and neighbors fall for each other's sons. It's Robin Wright, Naomi Watts, Xavier Samuel from the Twilight movies, and James Frenchville, who is the kid from uh, Animal Kingdom, also starring Ben Mendelsohn. So Ben Mendelsohn, and uh, that was another Animal Kingdom reunion. But yes, that was the... um, They'll think we're Lezo's movie, right? Uh, Naomi Watts and Robin Wright, and they're doing each other's sons. Yeah. Love that movie. Worth worth right. revisiting, for sure. Based on a Doris Lessing book, which I find very interesting. It's just sort of it's like, oh, there's a little uh, literary sheen onto that very kind of... Oh, there's our alarm again. Oh, okay. alarm. Okay, what do you got for me about the Ten Commandments? All right, next thing about the Ten Commandments. We mentioned Anne Baxter. Not only does this movie feature, you know, fantastic, timeless diva Anne Baxter, it also features Yvonne DiCarlo of um, oh, yeah. the Munsters and Follies fame, if t- to name two very divergent pieces of pop culture history. But um, she plays Sephora, which, which also, like... It's a movie where the heroine's name is Sephora. So, like, you know, come one, come all. Um, but, like, she plays Moses' wife, essentially, that uh, that he uh, that he meets when he goes off into the wilderness. And the scene where she encounters him, it's her and, like, all of her sisters. And she's got, like, six sisters. And he's basically, like, passed out in the brush or whatever. And they just sort of look. And it's literally they just go a man and they all like have this like frenzy out of a chuck jones cartoon about just like oh my god it's a man what does he look like what does he taste like what does he smell like and it's just like it's it's hilarious but also very much sort of in keeping with the campy tone of this movie like the fact that Yvonne de carlo is essentially cast to play the dowdy one is hilarious and it's like <laughs> it's so again this movie is a true camp classic watch the scene where where sephra and her sister sort of like essentially just start like running around the kitchen just bumping into each other being like what do we do it's a man it's a man and i don't know i love it i love it so much what about the prince of egypt 
Uh, well, I guess if we're still talking about casts of these movies, again, we mentioned that Prince of Egypt has, like, a crazy famous cast. Where else are you going to get a movie that thinks it's conceivable that Val Kilmer, Sandra Bullock, and, Sa- and Jeff Goldblum could all be siblings? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, of course, it's of the, like, 90s era where, well, not even just the 90s, of animated movies where famous people do not sing for themselves who sings in this movie? I'm not talking about an actress, but I am talking about a national institution, a theater legend, and icon, Brian Stokes Mitchell. Really? Yes, he sings for Danny Glover. As what character? Uh, hold on, let me look that up. Uh-huh. Sorry, I did not mean to put you on the spot. Who sings for oh, Val no, Kilmer? He plays, he plays uh, Jethro for his father. Oh, there we go. Um, okay. But yes, he has a big, like, giant ballad song. This is Brian Stokes Mitchell. How? I wonder what season Ragtime was. So this is, like, post-Ragtime, whereas, like, uh-huh. Brian Stokes Mitchell's voice is huge and amazing. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Brian Stokes Mitchell. Very good. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, back to Exodus, Gods, and Kings. What's our next bullet point of this? I mean, I guess we can talk about the movie like kind of releasing and dying uh we could talk about the actual oscar season itself this is the Birdman year which is a very 2014 is a very weird oscar year i find it took a long time for consensus to really wrap up and like people always in hindsight say that Birdman's win is so surprising i kind of don't necessarily think that because it was the early fall festival movie this is a year where there's a lot of things that had been around all year like boyhood and grand budapest hotel i think birdman feels less surprising in retrospect i think as it was happening the way i recall that year sort of shaking out was boyhood was sundance right yes so boyhood premieres at sundance everybody flips out for it whiplash and Yes, that's true. Um, but I think Boyhood was the movie that, like, for so much of that year, there was just, like, do we think this movie could possibly be an Oscar play? Because it's, you know, it's small, and, you know, even though it's Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke, there aren't, there isn't, like, this big star turn at the center of it, and um, it feels, you know, somewhat experimental. And so the journey of Boyhood from becoming this, like, we don't, you know, could it to for a while at least it felt like a front runner but it felt like a front runner waiting to be surpassed and then at some mm-hmm. point it hadn't it didn't seem like it had gotten surpassed and then people started to really think oh boyhood could win this and then it became you know you were a boyhood person you were not and i really hated that moment where it's just like we had to sort of like take sides on this movie and that's when a lot of the knives for that movie came out about how you know, it's, you know, navel-gazing, white male, whatever, and nobody liked poor Eller Coltrane. Everybody sort of, like, came for him, and everybody was like, oh, I, you know, deciding that the fact that this teenage character, as he was going off for college, was full of shit, was, like, a bug and not a feature of the movie. I mean, there was a lot of, sort of, arguments about Boyhood that I found a little Mm -hmm. um, irritating. And then Birdman comes up, sort of, like, Slowly but surely, and that's another one where people are just like, "Oh, Birdman, weird," but like, it's it's gonna get nominated, but it's not gonna win. It's not it's gonna come close, but yeah, it's, not it's gonna a very win. strange movie. And then all of a sudden, we sort of like looked around with a month to go before Oscar, and we were just like, "Oh, 
I guess it is kind of Birdman. For a while, people thought it might be a split, that Inuritu might get director and Boyhood could get picture. And then mm-hmm. ultimately, weirdly, I do wonder, we talked about when we had Kevin Jacobson on, about wanting to go and look at vote totals. I would love yeah. to see how close the Grand Budapest Hotel came because I think Grand Budapest was probably second place to be I honest. I think in both because of those. if Boyhood doesn't even muster up that screenplay right. win right. over Birdman right. that when that's like the quintessential award that a movie like that would win. Agreed. I think Wes Anderson finished probably second in director and I think Grand Budapest uh, cuz it won like four awards, right? Like it was the mm-hmm. most it won the most awards of any film that year, I want to say. Or at least tied with won. Birdman. Um, I would, yeah, because Birdman won four. And I think Grand Budapest also won four. I think that was the tally. It did. It did. Um, that was also a very rough Oscars in terms of... That was when, like, Selma had all of that buzz and it really fell by the wayside, but then got mm-hmm. that Best Picture nomination, which almost felt, like, more insulting than snubbing it outright because if you're going to... Not nominate David Oyelowo, not nominate Ava DuVernay, not nominate the screenplay, and it's only two nominations are going to be Best Picture and Best Song. It felt so backhanded. And was a big sort of like building block to then the next year when uh, the Oscars So White thing blew up was Mm -hmm. 2014. It had, you know, there were some big snubs in 2014 as well. And I think that was, um, I don't know, there were a lot of, it wasn't great. There was a lot of not great about that season. Yeah, this is such a, like, I don't know. This is, of recent years, this is one of the more disappointing Oscars to go back and look at, largely because there's not great stuff. I found it <laughs> I found it more frustrating, even, because, like, there was a lot of, like, stuff that I loved and a lot of stuff that, if it had been more robustly considered, like Selma, mm-hmm. like Wild wild you know what i mean gone girl gone girl exactly like there's some really great movies here and i think the fact that those got pushed aside for things like theory of everything and the imitation american sniper american sniper which was like i almost i would almost be better with something like american sniper just because it's like it did have such a big box office and it did have um I think it's a little bit more of a complex movie than it gets credit for. I think ultimately with Clint Eastwood there, you want to sort of put it in as right wing a box as possible. And yet it definitely has a a complicated relationship with its main character while at the same time for me, and I suspect it's the same way for you, you can't get around the fact that you've cast this like incredibly charismatic actor in this lead role. And right. And I think the the good things about that movie kind of start and end with Bradley Cooper for me. Um, yeah. Not Sienna Miller holding also, a, a baby doll. <laughs> yeah, the 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 fake baby. Um, the fake baby is so emblematic of the the like level of give no fuck that <laughs> Clint Eastwood approaches his movies anymore. Yes, it's just like it's we got to like, get this film. It's filmed. fine. Keep moving. Right. Yes, it's totally true. Like, it's so emblematic of everything that he's done in the past decade. Um, I don't know. Even, like, if you get down to the minutiae of this 2014 Oscar race, like, you can keep, like, pulling it apart and find things to be frustrated about. Like, I'm someone who likes Whiplash, but it's still frustrating to me 
that that distributor also had Still Alice and could only get Julianne Moore. Right. We've talked about this before. We we both really like Still Alice. We think that it's better than just her performance. There are three performances in that movie that would have been worthy of Oscar nominations. I I absolutely feel like uh, Kristen Stewart and Alec Baldwin should have also been nominated in the supporting categories. Um, Yeah, Whiplash is an interesting film in that it's a movie I don't like very much for a lot of reasons, for the, you know, the things that it ultimately says about its characters and about, you know, sort of maniacal instructional figures. And yet Mm -hmm. I can't like, I love it when the Oscars will just decide that a character actor that like, this is your turn. Um, And this was very much a, this is your turn year for JK Simmons because JK Simmons was Mm -hmm. like quintessential character actor nobody knew his name but he was that guy from law and order he was that guy from oz he was that guy from you know whatever movie juno you know whatever you're talking about and all of a sudden he gives a performance that is such an eye catcher that everybody gets on board at once and it's just like oh yeah no we love this guy and we're going to you know vote him all the way through octavia spencer and the help i think is is a similar case and i like that i like that when you know these actors who especially and as we get more and more into this age of a-listers and co-leads being nominated and supporting that that felt really good that all of a sudden we mm-hmm. still have some room for but then you still have people complaining saying that that's a lead performance so like yeah i mean i don't, I don't know. know i don't know what to do for those people <laughs> <laughs> what is that line from carol that sarah paulson gives where she's just like i can't help you with that yeah yeah this is also an Oscar year, too, where a lot of the, like, big titles at the end of the year, even if they got, like, even in, like, Interstellar's case, an Oscar win, mm-hmm. ultimately, like, disappointed because you have things like Into the Woods, Unbroken, uh, I mentioned Interstellar, that arrive later in the year, don't play, like, a festival, and once they arrive almost immediately leave, like, Best Picture conversations. Right. There was a lot of those. What are your top five to ten that year? Do you have that handy? Personally? Uh, let me see if I have it on Letterbox. I'm not sure if I do. I'd probably say my number one this year is Under the Skin. Oh, Maybe yeah. If I remember correctly, you do not like. Um, no, I like Under the Skin quite a bit. Oh, okay. You're probably confusing me with somebody else, but yeah, I really like that movie. Maybe. Yeah, I have my top ten, and I think I stand by this. You give yours, and let me dig up mine as well. Okay. My top ten. And, like, the next two or three titles underneath this would probably be competing for, like, ten and number nine. Sure. My number ten, I have Dear White People. Mm, Great. Great movie. Love Tessa Thompson in that movie. Yes. I have number nine is Birdman. Yes. Number eight, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Oh, Mommy is so good. Number seven, Foxcatcher. Yes. Number six, Whiplash. Yes. Number five, The Great Ira Sachs' Love is Strange. Yes. Number four is Selma. Number three is Wild. Number two is Gone Girl. And number one is Under the Skin. Um, That's excellent, actually. Hold on, let me try and I mean, that's what I got for you. Under the Skin's a fantastic movie. Under the Skin is one of those movies where you watch it and you're just like, well, this has no shot at Oscar. And yet, 
I want to sort of, you know, stump for it as much as possible. And I at least wanted it to get some, I would have liked it if Scarlett Johansson could have gotten like one critics award or something like that. And ultimately it doesn't. Other things probably stumping to be in that top 10. I love the immigrant. I love a most violent year. I love Ex Machina. Ex Machina is a great movie. Um, that's again. I, th- I I sort of I wanted us to bring these up because I do feel like there's you know that's a strong year. Where again I'm looking at mine and like my te- my ten and eleven are Gone Girl and Interstellar, two movies that like I would have killed to have gotten nominated on the Best Picture list that year because they were both you know certainly on the radar of Oscar voters and both a lot better than a lot of the films that did end up there. So I've got Gone Girl at my number 10. My number nine is Pride, a movie that I bring up quite a bit. It's wonderful movie. Makes me cry every time. Where are my lesbians? Etc. <laughs> Under the Skin is my eight. My number seven is Only Lovers Left Alive, by far my favorite Jim Jarmusch movie. And good movie. Um, sexy. Sexy, little funny. A little sort of like you know dark tilda swinton and tom hiddleston as like sexy vampires together like the final shot of the movie is one of the scariest fucking things i've ever seen wait remind me it's just them with their like fangs out like coming oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 thank you yeah coming for like you in the audience and yeah. you're just like literally i remember thinking when that happened i was just like wow so the last shot of only lovers left alive is me getting devoured by tom hiddleston and tilda swinton like sign me up yes please. it's sexy but it's also very oh absolutely scary. uh my number six is boyhood a movie that i think i could probably put in any of the top six slots that year and it would feel correct i really do love that movie i think it 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 did so well. Number five is Wild, a movie that when I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival, which was not at any kind of a premiere, nor was it like at the first critics screening. I think I saw it sort of later in the week. And so everybody sort of knew <laughs> what the reception was. And yet I felt this swell of pride at Reese Witherspoon when they, they her name came up in the end credits that I just sort of like did my own little standing ovation just at the back of the theater because I love her. I love Reese <laughs> so much. My number four is Stranger by the Lake, which was a big hit at Cannes that year. Very sort of sexy, somewhat, you know, if Hitchcock was a gay man cruising at a French lake, it might have looked a little something Filmed like that unsimulated sex scenes unsimulated sex scenes love it uh love is strange is my number three iris Axe, as you mentioned just fantastic just so wonderful alfred Molina and john lithgow the you know love story of the decade as far as i'm concerned it was so wonderful marissa tomei is also phenomenal in that movie like deserved an oscar nomination there for sure and she didn't get it which is too bad. Um, and then my number two movie is Selma. Selma's fantastic. You know, Ava DuVernay really brought it all together. I thought it was really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then my number one is Mommy, which had me. We- I didn't know that. Weeping in my seat when I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. There is the sort of um, fantastical reverie moment towards the end where she imagines this idealized life for her kid as he grows up and he gets married and and all the sort of like happy moments that she's envisioning for him as she's making the decision to um institutionalize him and it is as dramatic as anything that Xavier Dolan would want to do and like fully you know is over the top in a lot of ways and the music is so 
you know, incredible. But I still can't really pinpoint what it is about that movie that makes all of his isms. I also like um he's done two other movies that I kind of like, Tom at the Farm and Lawrence anyways, but like I don't know what it is about Mommy that's working so well that makes that movie so great. So much that has made him kind of fall flat on his face doing it in other movies. Even the ones that came before, like I Killed My Mother or whatever, it was just which is also uh, same actress, Andrew Wall. And um incredible. She would be on my best actress list. Oh, for sure. She's so wonderful. Um yeah, I think it's a very strong year. I think, you know, and that's not even including movies like Mr. Turner, Edge of Tomorrow, Obvious Child, National Gallery, the uh the um why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Fred Wiseman. Thank you. The Wiseman movie. That is probably my favorite of this sort of like current era of Wiseman movies that I think sort of kicked off with at Berkeley. I think that's wonderful. There is a tour guide in National Gallery. All right. Timer's going. Oh, wait. we got 15 minutes. Okay. All right. Uh, I just want to really. Joseph, tell me yeah. something about the uh, Ten Commandments. Yes. Um, tour guide in National Gallery is a dreamboat and is my uh, fan, uh, imaginary boyfriend. Anyway, next thing, <laughs> I promised to mention Vincent Price. Vincent Price is in the Ten Commandments for like two or three scenes as a an Egyptian sort of like slave driver. He's the one who sort of torments Joshua in the early parts of the movie and tries to sort of like um, acquire, procure Joshua's girlfriend, Lilia, for his own. And um, He's so sort of like lispily cruel and he mentions that like Joshua will feel the taste of his whip and it's like it's oh. so um that's your big moment of homoeroticism in the 10 commandments and I fully fully had forgotten it when I all those that all those times that I watched it as a kid and I wonder if like childhood me either like pushed it out of my brain because it was too much for me to deal with or like internalized it so much that like it's i'd have to excavate it from from my memories but it's so it's (laughs) you think of vincent price as this sort of just like great horror like you know impresario or whatever but like also he's playing completely out of his element he's like bronzered up for the gods literally for the gods in this movie and um i mean whatever the 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 white casting in that movie is even more problematic but like different era yada 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 whatever um, yeah, he's like lispy as you please and totally wonderful and just <laughs> whipping the hell out of Joshua. And again, see this movie when it comes on. It's worth your while. Heck yeah. All right. So for uh, probably my last note about the uh, Prince of Egypt, yes. it is co-directed by a female director, Brenda Chapman. Um, we want her to succeed. Anybody who knows any of the backstory of the Pixar movie Brave knows that she was treated somewhat very poorly, um, when she was directing that movie. Um, so yeah, support the Prince of Egypt so you can support Brenda Chapman. Wonderful. Um, and if this is going to be our last thing, I should also say (laughs) Yul Brynner is a time and a half watching this movie. Like it's his sort of legend is well-known you know he's such a he's was in so many like really memorable hollywood roles but like this as ramses the part in drag race all-stars when rupaul says so let it be written so as so as it is written so let it be done like that thing that's like yule brenner line readings from the ten commandments and nobody fucking realizes that (laughs) because it's you know again this movie has not become a camp classic like it should and it is my mission to make sure that happens 
We'll carve out a good four and a half hours of our day Fuck so that we can make Yeah, happen. for real. <laughs> um, I love that at one point in this document, in our Exodus Gods and Kings document, you have under miscellanea just eyeliner. I know. If I haven't said the word eyeliner enough in this, uh, you know, whole episode. Very much. Uh, just eyeliner. Uh, surprisingly not a makeup nominee. Yeah. Considering, like I mentioned, the sugar crystals that were the like leprosy, yeah, curse. What were the uh, the makeup nominees that year? I wonder. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm sure Grand Budapest. Hold on, let me open the right tab. I always get a little tripped out when a makeup nominee is working in conjunction with CGI so much which is the case with Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, I know there are practical mm-hmm. effects in conjunction with the CGI, but to me, as a lay person watching it, and I, you know, whatever, whether the Oscars are, sh- you know, should come from that perspective or not is, you know, debatable at best. But I don't know. I think it's very difficult to extract one from the other, and I think the full effect of Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't come across without the CGI, and so mm-hmm. I don't know. It would be. I think it's a cool nomination. Okay. Um, yes, Grand Budapest Hotel was the winner. Can you guess the other nominee? Oh, because there was three of them. Yes. Into the woods. By a nose, Fox. Oh, uh, sure, of course. Also for Channing Tatum's Frosted Tips. Frosted Tips, and yeah, and also there was a lot of like, wasn't there some like sort of like. Cro-Magnon forehead action going on with one of either him or Ruffalo, or maybe I'm You know, maybe. Mistaken. I think they maybe shaved <coughs> back his hairline. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to say, I already said that it was on my top ten, but, like, our good friend Katie Rich always, it feels like she gets the brunt for saying that Foxcatcher is good. If you're going to drag Katie Rich, you can feel free to drag me as well. Foxcatcher is great. Man, throwing your staff onto the Nile of a... Uh... People really hate that movie. I didn't I love it, I will say. I it. I mean, it's very grim. I have a high, like, my my cup is very full in terms of grimness, and, like, I can take a lot of it. But I don't get it. I don't get why people have such, like, knives out for that movie. I don't know if I have my knives out for that movie. I did find it grim. I did find it slow. I love both Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo's performances in that movie. Yeah, they're I think incredible. they're great. And I think any movie that has that, you know rolls out literally Vanessa Redgrave for a moment of campiness is a movie that I can't ever fully hate. Um, She doesn't like you being low. She doesn't want to see that. So I like that. But yeah, I I think the Carell performance to me is a miss. And the film... It's a movie that's nominated for the wrong performance. Yeah. I mean, uh, Ruffalo did get nominated too, which is good. And I was glad that that he did. Over Simmons. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't yeah. disagree. That scene where he has to like say something nice about DuPont. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. You know what? Here's something interesting. I'm looking at my own lists. I have listed at number one Edward Norton and Birdman. I don't know if I would go for that again. I don't know why I have him as my number one. And yet there he is. I think he's great in Birdman. I don't know if I would rank him as my number one. I also have Melina in Love is Strange, Ruffalo in Foxcatcher, Jeff Goldblum in The Weeknd, our, uh, our friend Roger Michelle, and Alec Baldwin in Stella Alice. Fantastic. 
So what else? What else about Exodus, Gods, and Kings? Can I go through my little thing of my notes and see if there's anything that we haven't addressed? Yes. Give us your last lingering. Oh, so the score. Alberto Iglesias does the score. And it's very much what you imagine a score for a movie set in the Middle East during, like, pre-Jesus times would sound like it's i feel like yeah. this kind of it's sp- another one of those things where you're like i have seen this movie a lot of wailing voices a lot of sort of just like very kind of typically what american audiences understand as middle eastern sort of sounds um i think we've gotten so accustomed to scores like this though in any kind of context that my very first thought when the score sort of made its presence known in this movie was like, oh, this sounds like Battlestar Galactica. Because it's so, that kind of score has been so pervasive in so many different genres now that I think it's lost its um, distinctiveness, which, you know, too bad. Um, Did Ben Mendelsohn just really offer to blow Moses? Um, LOL, boy God is a note that I wrote, which it's so, I think it comes across as very silly. It comes across as very silly, and it's also, like, a little bit, like, all right, Ridley Scott, we get it. You're trying to make a point here, like, right. of uh, all of that, and it's like, God's really just a petulant, petulant little child. Right, exactly. It's like, wait, if... Like, he's just mad if, at everybody. If you think about it, like, God in the down. Old Testament is blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we get it. I too have taken a uh, college, fre- an undergraduate <laughs> freshman Seminar, religion class. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote: Is the theme of this movie "Don't just say what people want to hear"? Because it's a thing that comes up like in at least two different instances, and I don't think it works as a th- greater theme. And I don't know if it was even intended as such, but like it's a, th- it's something that comes up a bunch in this movie, where it's just sort of like. You know, Moses isn't telling, you know, his brother what he wants to hear. He's telling the truth or he's, you know, he's leading the the Hebrews. And, you know, if they want to follow him into the Nile, they can do it. But he's just he's just truth telling as uh, as Meryl Streep in August Osage County was fond of saying um, a lot of this dialogue feels not particularly period when Ramses says what you are asking yeah. is problematic to say the least. First of all, problematic is not a term that existed before Twitter. I don't know. Like or it did, but not in <laughs> not in very common ways. I don't know. That took me No, it's a weirdly anachronistic movie and that feels like such a strange complaint to throw at this movie given everything else, but it's just like another kind of thing to really take you out of it and not get invested. Yeah. Um, also, the scene with the Nile parting that it also threw in just like five tornadoes for fun is yeah. funny to me. I don't know. It would be better if there was just a cow floating through the background. That's like sort of cows. what I thought. It was just like I had just seen The Day After Tomorrow again on uh, on TV the other day. And that scene where L.A. is just getting housed by several tornadoes. And um that one, at least, those felt like the point of that scene, whereas this one is just like, just throw some tornadoes in the background to, like, make it cooler. There was so much of this movie yeah. that's just like, do X to make it cooler. And 
It's 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 the Exodus, like, it's a, and it's a it's a distinctly not cool. Movie. No, not at all. I don't know. I hated this movie. I really I thought it was it bad. Not only long and not only um, not interesting, but like I thought the cynicism of this Bible story just needs more action scenes to be bad. Yeah. I thought um, the trying to explain everything from this movie as a you know as natural phenomenon felt banal at best it just i don't know i don't see the point yeah i i it's the cynicism is like the real killer here for me because i kind of feel like ridley scott is a very cynical filmmaker and it's just like i felt like i was watching a movie that was angry at me for no reason right and like I don't know, only wanting to do the base level by also doing the most. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, did not like it. Should we move on to the IMDb game? We absolutely should. Sorry, I was swallowing a pen. Why don't you tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? Sure, I would love to. The IMDb game, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. It's the IMDb game. Joseph, would you like to give or guess first? I'll give first because mine uh, involves giving you a choice. Oh. So recently, we're recording this on March 1st, so we recently passed the date February 27th, which is better known as 227, which is better known as uh, Jack A. Harry Appreciation Day. And Ah. my favorite clip of Jack A. as Sandra on 227 is when they all go on Family Feud. And her entire fast money round is um, all the answers are like, name something you want. And she's like, a man and uh, a young man, an old man, a rich man, any man. Like all her answers are that. (laughs) So I'm going to give you a choice between an old man or a young man. Uh, I will do a young man. All right. So we mentioned the film White Squall previously. Um Hunks on a ship, Dead Poet Society with Twinks, even more Twinks. There were already Twinks in Dead Poet Society. Um, Jeff Bridges and a boat full of boys, Scott Wolf, Jeremy Sisto, Ryan Phillippe, um, just a bunch of guys. This movie's got dead Twinks, right? Right? They all die on the boat. I think so. I think that's okay. I think that's what happens. Um, one of the one of the boys on this, played by Ethan Embry who is a wonderful character actor and somebody I very much appreciate. And I'm going to ask you if you can do Ethan Embry's known for with the caveat that one of them is really, 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 really hard. And if I'm like, I won't make you struggle through it too much because I had never heard of it. There's a chance you might have, but whatever. Um, They're all movies. I'm already like racking my brain because he he done something recently that it felt like for a minute like my corner of the internet was like wait what the fuck guys that is Ethan Embry um oh I rem- he uh I don't think this is on there he's in blind spotting he plays the cop that shoots the guy oh yeah this is not on there but yeah you're uh, right he is in that's not on there um can't hardly wait can't hardly wait should be on there because that's truly his like 
You've got to be kidding the apex me. of his of his acting career. He's the leading he's the leading man in Can't Hardly Wait. Fairly popular movie. No, it's not Can't Hardly Wait. Fine. Um, that thing you do. Yes, correct. That thing you do as we all know the I bass that player. Thing you do. That is the role. That is the credited role. The bass player. Um, Empire Records. Yes, Empire Records playing Mark as in Empire Records, a movie I fully adore, and he's cute as a button in that. <laughs> I should get that poster. That's a great poster with, like, the six of them all sort of, like, posing together and Liv Tyler is in front of them, literally with her arms out, being like, I am the star of this movie. And Renee Empire Zellweger... Records rules. People who don't like it... Drool. ...can yeah. not talk to me. Exactly. I don't yeah. know. Um, I'm gonna guess that White Squall is not on It there. is not. So that's two strikes. I remember he's in Vegas Vacation. Don't ask me how I remember <laughs> the movie Vegas Vacation even exists, but I'm going to guess that that is not there. Wait, you get years because you've now made two wrong guesses. Oh, I have? What did I Can't hardly wait. also guess? That's just one. You just said, um, what did you just guess that I just said no? No, to? I said I, d- I wasn't guessing it. Oh, I see. Because uh, I know Vegas Vacation is not on there. No, but what did you say right before Vegas Vacation? Uh, did I say right <laughs> my brain is I full of it's full of holes um, that I literally can't remember the thing you said right before there. I don't know. Okay. Um, well, anyway, I, you, I'll give you another. Uh, no, you said. All right, fine. Oh, I, were you saying you don't think White Squall is there, or were you? Yes, I do not think White Squall is okay, on there. Okay. Well, then that was not a guess. Okay, one more guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> I can't see how. I'm running out of things, but I can't see how if Can't Hardly Wait is on there, Disturbing Behavior is. But I'm just going to guess Disturbing Behavior. It's not Disturbing Behavior. Was he in that? Yeah. Disturbing Behavior, like 1998 or whatever. Yes, he is in that. You're right. You're right. Is he yeah. the guy who goes He's preppy early? He's just not early? one of the twinks on the poster. Right. Is he the guy who goes preppy early in that movie? think so anyway yeah not him all right now you get years 2002 and 2003 one of these movies is the one that's impossible and one of them um i think you should be able to get it is a film that did not get any oscar nominations but got how many golden globe nominations wait did it not get a golden globe nomination that year hold on It was mm. a popular movie of that year for sure. It made a lot of money. Okay. I'm going to look up. I thought for sure that this lead actress got a Golden Globe nomination uh, actress in a comedy. In 2002 or 2003? For 2002. Okay. It was certainly popular so it's a comedy, to have gotten it's a popular comedy. You're expecting the actress to get it. Yeah, I guess she didn't. That year was the two ladies from Chicago, Maggie. And it's like, let, she's the lead. It's not like it's a movie about a man and it has a great female performance. Right, she's the lead. She's the only one on the poster. Oh, in 2002, mm-hmm. not nominated for a He's the he's one of the supporting guys, but not the love interest. Oh, um, 
Wait, no, she was she got a Globe nomination for that. What? Uh, I was thinking Sweet Home Alabama for Reese, but I thought she got nominated for As that. As did I. It's insane that she didn't. Weird. Yes. Is that right? Yes, Sweet Home Alabama is right. Yeah. Oh, wow. 2002, yeah. actress in a comedy, Renee and Catherine Zeta-Jones, both from Chicago, Maggie Gyllenhaal from Secretary, Nia Vardalos from Big Fat Greek Wedding, and Goldie Hawn from The Banger Sisters. No room at the end uh, for that? Reese Witherspoon in the, like, blockbuster America's sweetheart crowning um, Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, insane. Yeah, but that was a year after Legally Blonde. So it's like they kind of gave it to her. I guess that Legally Blonde is part of the reason why you would think that she would have continued. Right. As I remember it, though, the fact that she was able to follow up Legally Blonde with Sweet Home Alabama, I remember a lot of people being like, well, that seals it. Like that, it is no longer a fluke. Um, that movie did win right. choice movie lip lock between Reese Witherspoon and Josh Lucas. So there's that. Oh, fantastic. Well done. Yeah. At the teen choice awards. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so one more. So, okay. Free for all of hints. Let's go. Let's do this thing. It is a right. 2003 movie. It is one of those movies. It's a sci-fi movie. It's one of those movies where the leads are all sort of like floating heads over in this case, a flurry of fire arrows. Is it the dragon movie? The Matthew McConaughey dragon movie? It isn't. Although that's a good guess. Okay. Um, so this cast, the lead in this cast um, is now dead, unfortunately. Um, oh. The other actors in this movie, so the ones on the poster, I'm pretty sure, are the lead actor who is dead. The second guy is... Um, a notoriously uh, an actor who's notorious for bad movies in the 2000s um starting with one particularly ill-considered role in a musical and then the leading actress uh 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 Jared Butler Jared Butler right okay um I can't tell whether the actress on the poster is Frances O'Connor or Anna Friel but I think it's Frances O'Connor I, they're just really communicating to you that there is a lady in the movie. Yeah, well, sort of. She's just like, she's in a lineup of, you know, she's third out of these Francis three faces. Francis O'Connor or Anna Friel? Yeah. What the hell? What the hell indeed. Okay, so sci-fi um, based on a Michael Crichton novel, which is interesting, and directed... Oh, I know what this is. It's a time travel movie. It is. In fact, take one of those words and that's your halfway home. Travel? No. <laughs> the other one. Time. Yes. Time. Uh, is it like time thieves or something nope, like that? Nope, just one word with that as the beginning part of it. Time table. Nope. Uh, timeline. Yes, 2003's timeline, directed by Richard Donner. Get the fuck out of town. Go. Directed by Richard Donner. Never heard of it. A group of archaeologists become trapped in the past I, when they I, go there I've to retrieve a friend. It, yeah. The group must survive in 14th century France before they can escape back to the 21st century. Starring who's the dead actor who stars in this? Uh, died in a car accident. Which? Uh, Paul Walker. Yes, Paul Walker. Paul Walker. Francis O'Connor. Gerard Butler. Billy Connolly, our friend David Thewlis, Anna Friel, Neil McDonough, Ethan Embry, Michael Sheen is in this movie, Lambert Wilson from the Matrix movies is in this movie. Like, a lot of people are in this movie. I'm almost tempted to watch it, although I don't want to pay for it, but I think 
it's available on Prime Video with a Showtime subscription, which I don't have, but like I can find someone's Showtime login. When we talk about the type of movies that have gone away with like the imploding film industry, mm-hmm. like these are the movies that don't exist anymore. Yes. Like the like there used to be tons of shitty movies like this that would come out and like either make money or not and not really have any cultural imprint and like these are the movies that are gone now. It's true. That nobody makes these movies. I want to find ludicrous. I want to find a shot of Ethan Embry in this movie and I can't quite it's so funny because it's like half of them, they're like dressed as scientists and half of them, they're dressed as like French peasants. Medieval, right? Yeah. Like it's a medieval. medieval. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. A, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, but like as a scientific <laughs> um, thriller sort of. It's weird. Get out of town. It's really weird. All right. You give to me. So for you, I went to the other Ridley Scott, like uh, ancient times movie his crusades film kingdom of heaven who did i choose for you not the unseen edward norton not orlando bloom <laughs> but the love interest miss ava green oh boy okay love you that have one television show that would that has to be penny dreadful it is penny my dreadful. beloved penny dreadful i love it so much okay um casino royale yes miss peregrine's home for blah 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 no. Okay. Now, do I guess another Tim Burton movie? Fuel your children. Right. Do I guess another Tim Burton movie, or do I move on? Um, is the question. Eva Green. Oh, um, is it that Bertolucci movie she made, The Dreamers? Yes. Ah, wow, okay. You are waiting one more wrong guess. Um, I'm just going to do... Um, um, what's it called? Fucking... Um, Dark Shadows. Nope. All right. So your year is 2014, the year we are talking about. Gosh. Okay. Um, Ava Green, 2014. This is a movie that stumped me previously. I just forget for who. So like a big cast. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um... Ava Green. Um, it is a sequel. Oh. Is it another Bond? Is it... Uh, no, because no. the Bond movie wasn't that year. Um, Quantum of Solace, I do think she's credited in, but you are not getting... Oh, oh, oh. Um, is it the 300 sequel? The It is not. Ah. Forgot that 300 had a sequel. She's like the lead in that, right? Sort of? I think so, yeah. Um... Is there another? Okay, well, not. You're not far off at all. Okay. Hmm. In terms of source material. Source material is a comic book, a graphic novel. Perhaps even the same author. Sin City. Sin City, um, a a dame to die for, a dame to kill for. A dame to kill for. Sure. Correct. Sure. Okay. Ava Green doesn't make very much. Ava Green, like, deserves better. She does. Absolutely she does. She does. Okay. She does. 
And on that note, that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, please tell our listeners where they can find more of you. Yes, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Joe Reed, read spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd, also as Joe Reed, read spelled R-E-I-D as well. All right, and I am also on Twitter applying my eyeliner and defending snakes <laughs> at Crispy File. Uh, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Medias for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. The five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so who knows what miracles we can achieve when you believe in us. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Yay.